is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. In this episode, we hear from Sam Ratto of Vidari Chocolate in Raleigh, North Carolina. Vidari is celebrating its 10th anniversary in December and partners extensively with breweries to provide cacao for chocolate beers. So we'll also hear from Sean Lilly Wilson of Full Steam Brewery and Lauren Woods Limbach of New Belgium Brewing. So my background in chocolate starts in 2009 when I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. I got a job at Escazoo when they were starting their Bean to Bar project in late 2009. And my job was to sort, roast, and winnow the beans. And from the first moment that I touched a bag of beans and sorted them, roasted them, and winnowed them, I was absolutely hooked. I worked there for about a year. And then in 2011, I went out on my own. I got a private investor and opened the doors of the Dairy Chocolate Factory on December 15, 2011. That's Sam Morato, the founder of Vidari Chocolate in Raleigh, North Carolina. Vidari is celebrating its 10th anniversary on December 15th and makes a full line of single origin and inclusion bars, as well as bonbons and other confections, and they also provide cacao in various forms for numerous breweries in the craft beer hotbed of North Carolina. The name Vidari in Latin means to be seen or viewed, and refers to the transparency of Vidari's cacao sourcing and business practices, as well as the opportunity to literally view the chocolate-making process at their Raleigh Cafe. Since we're right in the middle of their busiest season of the year, their anniversary party will have to wait till January, but I did have the chance to sit down recently with Sam and talk about his ongoing delight in chocolate, his process-focused lens for tasting, and the importance of responsible sourcing for his cacao. So our sourcing always has been and, and always will be a relationship with a broker, a farmer, or an owner of uh, land. Both sides of my family are farmers. My dad's side of the family still owns and operates a farm in Northern California. So my background is uh, knowing farmers and how much work it takes to farm something. So when we source beans, we only source beans from brokers or farms that tell us how much a farmer gets paid for their wet beans. If a farmer isn't willing or they don't have a system set up or they may pay them closer to what is considered commodity or gate price. We don't work with those farmers or places. In saying that, we've been working with Meridian Cacao, Uncommon Cacao, and now um, having a good relationship with Zorzal Reserve. But we've been using those brokers, especially Gino at Meridian, since the beginning of our company. We started with some bigger companies like Ecom or Atlantic, or I think we had a mishap with uh, Mitsubishi Trading once. And if it wasn't for the grace and kindness of John Nancy at Chocolate Alchemy, I don't think this business would still be around. We also have to take into account consistency and quality and Uncommon Cacao, Meridian and Zorzal, and especially Costa Esmeraldas in Ecuador. Those groups have quality of fermentation, drying and shipping at the forefront of their practice when they're talking to us as customers. 
and it keeps getting better with farmers at the forefront of getting paid more. So it's a really wonderful process to be a part of and starting at that source is amazing. So you've been doing this for 10 years now. You're handling these beans every day. What is the chocolate tasting experience like for you now personally, when you get the chance to sit down and actually spend some time with a bar, not just for, you know, evaluation for a product or something? What is that tasting experience like for you? I still really enjoy our chocolate to maybe like a ludicrous degree. My tasting experience in general is uh, the way my brain processes it is very functional or I guess a, a word would be tactile in that my brain is tasting processing first, which may sound counterintuitive, but we bought some chocolate from a, a chocolate shop in Las Vegas and, you know, we read the ingredients and they used a Dominican bean. So we, you know, two varieties of Dominican chocolate here and we tried it. And um, when you tasted it, you immediately tasted that they had separated the cocoa butter from the cocoa powder. And so that's kind of when I say like a tactile way of thinking about it is when I'm eating chocolate in general, my brain is going to like how and what equipment did they use to make this chocolate taste this way. And if it's something that maybe I'm surprised by, uh, maybe texture, maybe the flavor of a bean, especially other chocolate makers that we love and are friends with use the same beans when you're like, man, how did they do that in this machine? That's the more tactile version of it. In a daily setting, I work six to seven days a week. Some of them are a little bit shorter. Some of them are a little bit longer. But let's say that I'm in here sorting a bag of Ecuadorian Costa Esmeraldas beans. And I'm essentially picking out maybe 0.2 to 0.3 kilos of waste. And the whole time I'm just like smelling the beans and looking at them and seeing what they, they look and smell like. We may pop open a raw bean here or there just to see what it looks like and smells like. We don't do a lot of raw bean tasting in that sense because it isn't really a clear one-to-one. But once we start roasting, myself, uh, Mordecai, and Jazzy do all of the roasting at Videri right now. And when we're roasting, we're tasting each bag. It takes three roasts to roast it in our roaster. We're eating a bean here and there at about six to eight minute mark right when it hits a preset temperature in between 10 and 13 minutes, depending on the bean and the size of the roast. And then we uh, taste a bean uh, right around when it's getting to its, its desired temperature. And then we wait 15 minutes while it's cooling to taste it again. And we usually do that on the first roast of each bag just to see um, what we got going. And so that's the base tasting process for us. Now, once it gets into the processing it from nib to something, we do a lot more aroma and texture sampling. For a good example is when we make our 70% classic dark, we use a mix of Dominican, Ecuadorian, Guatemalan cocoa beans. We roast them all separately, winnow them all separately, and then we build a, a nib batch of our 70% recipe. So it's about equal parts of Dominican and Guatemalan and a lesser part of Ecuador. And we put all those into our uh, rotar grinder and we let those process for one day we empty it out, we uh, block those blocks up, and we age it for about a week to two weeks. But when it's running in the grinder, after about two or three hours, you're normally walking by that grinder quite a bit, and you're smelling it just to see if there's anything off in there. We had a time where we kind of got off with some uh, cinnamon flavor in our Dominican beans, and we figured out what that was, and it was a combination of roast and uh, the beans that we were getting from a certain season. But it's stuff like that where you're more like smelling it like, does this still have like 
a very citrus forward, very acidic nose to it three or four hours after it's been grinding. And then in the morning, does it have a very bright flavor? Has the head come off of the aroma a little bit? And then, you know, you, you age it. And then when we're making 70% every morning, you know, after we've added our cocoa butter and sugar, when it comes out of the grinder or the conch, we actually taste it first. Then we do a swipe test to see where the microns are. And so every single day, whoever's emptying out that 70% conch tastes it. The same thing with the milk chocolate. Once you get deeper into the process, whether you're making croissant sticks or you're pulling single origin batches or um, you're making bars or things like that, we've already QC'd it probably four times by the time it gets into that tempering machine or wherever vessel we're going to transform it into something. And then it becomes uh, more, we kind of put our focus on the confections because once we've tasted all that chocolate, we're like, yep, that 70% is good or uh, that, you know, 90% Ecuador is really good or that 75 Tanzania is really tasty. And then we all kind of gravitate towards like whatever new amazing thing that Carrie and her team have made in the confections department. Uh, right now we're really jazzed about an uh, olive oil and orange ganache that's vegan mm. uh, that we've been really jazzed on. We got, uh, we became friends with a company called Bona Fortuna out of Sicily that has like crazy old heirloom olive tree orchard and the olive oil they press just matched up perfectly with our 70%. Mm-hmm. And another thing we get a lot in here is, are you sick of eating chocolate? And my <laughs> response is, No, and I'm not lying. It is just that you're tasting so many different types, flavors, and points of process in here that it doesn't get old. As you alluded to just a bit ago, you are also a fan of craft beer and have partnerships with some craft breweries. Tell me a little bit about how that got started, and we'll talk some about the specific products that you offer for brewers. I love beer. That's how it started. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. That is the first thing. So when we started in 2011, first person I told outside of my family and friends that I was starting a chocolate factory was Sean Lily Wilson at Full Steam in April or May of 2011. I then, because I love beer and I really enjoy drinking different kinds of beer and trying new things, every time a brewer starts talking to me about how they made this beer and what they did with it, my brain just does not recognize it. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, cold side, hot side, yep, mash, mm-hmm, yeah, cool. But those relationships, I forget, how, I mean, we must have sold nibs to 50 to 150 breweries, and we have mm-hmm. about 10 or 15 that are consistent right now. And some people like uh, Sean and the team over at Full Steam, a couple of years ago, uh, they were the first one to take the, the bait on making a fruity cocoa nib beer. And they made a delicious, delicious beer with Guatemalan cocoa nibs. It was just a light, delicious. I think it was, might have even been like a Belgian style pale ale or something. Was that Vidari Gold? Yes. It was surprising that they were able to extract that flavor and pair it with that beer. And it was awesome. It wasn't weird. The sentiment, it was awesome, it wasn't weird, has probably been uttered in one form or another by countless visitors to Durham's Full Steam Brewery. Founder Sean Lilly Wilson and his brewing team are known for working with unexpected culinary ingredients in their beers, including persimmon, sweet potato, basil, pawpaw, chestnut, and many more, with these esoteric ingredients coming from local foragers or growers. With the motto, Plow to Pint, Full Steam showcases the importance and the beauty of the agricultural and culinary traditions of their region. 
It makes sense, then, that when brewing a chocolate beer, they would recognize the importance of ethically sourced fine flavor cacao. As you heard from Sam, Sean encouraged him early on to open Videri, and he was one of the very first brewers to purchase his cacao. I talked with Sean recently about how this relationship got started and how Full Steam uses single-origin cacao in a beer like Videri Gold. We at Full Steam opened a little bit before Videri, and I think it was in those early days when he and a friend were hanging out at the brewery and we got to talking. I, we had known each other in the various like food and beverage circles uh, and, and uh, you know, just got to chatting then. And, and I, I just feel like I've known him forever. And he said that you actually were one of the people who encouraged him to open the chocolate shop. Tell me a little bit about what you saw in his project there that made you encourage that. I just wanted more chocolate. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was selfish of me, I think, you know, it, no, and more seriously, I, they, when he was talking about his vision, the whole bean to bar ethos, uh, had a general understanding of that, you know, conceptually, uh, but since we call ourselves plow to pint and, and have a real passion for relationships with farmers. And that was one of the things that was a key differentiate a differentiator for him. Uh, it was easy to get excited about the idea and and encourage him. Um, but yeah, I pretty much just wanted more chocolate. <laughs> a perfectly valid motivation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there does seem to be a real compatibility between the philosophies of your two companies, even though you're making very different finished products. Uh, with your emphasis upon ingredients and agriculture and growers. Talk to me a little bit more about the significance of being able to use ethically sourced high quality cacao when you're going to make a beer with that it's just another added layer of goodness you know so why why source generically when you can source from a friend who you know cares about their sourcing and their quality for us we spend a fair amount of time thinking about buying local and how local sometimes extends or often extends not just to the farmers and the um, agricultural entrepreneurs, but the like-minded businesses that may get products from other parts of the world, but are value adding and producing right there in, in, in the triangle for us in the triangle of North Carolina. And uh, so it's twofold. We, we get to support a friend and, and local business, local small business, and we get the added benefit of knowing that they care as much as we do about relationships and ethical sourcing and sustainability. Let's talk about some of the specific beers then where you've been able to use Vidari's cacao. I know I've seen the Vidari Black and Vidari Gold specifically. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Yeah, the creatively named Vidari Black and <laughs> Vidari Gold. Uh, we also used it in Working Man's Lunch when we brewed that beer, a moon pie an RC Cola inspired brown ale. And uh, we've also used it in Igor, our Imperial Stout and various iterations of Igor. But I think Sam uh, really liked our takes and our creative use of cacao as a, as a fruit. And, and he really opened my eyes to reminding me that cacao, the, the bean is, you know, it is a fruit and um, it has fruit-like qualities that can be modified based on fermentation and temperature and all the things that he and you know more than than I do on it. But uh, we took inspiration from 
that conversation and, and his excitement over um, particular uh, varietal and source of cacao uh, that would lend a raspberry and, and bright acidic berry-like quality to the very gold I'm thinking of and tease that out into a um, Belgian style blonde beer. And it was, it was delightful. It was just enough of a surprise where it was just a lot of fun and unexpected use in, instead of the, the more predictable and traditional. Yeah, the majority of chocolate beers out there, of course, are usually porters and stouts. Tell me a little bit about that base beer, the Belgian blonde that you put this into. Yeah, it's a Belgian Belgian yeast and local grains, and of course the the cacao. Not a whole lot of uh, hop profile or other kind of distractions, and really just the emphasis was on a, a little bit of that estery quality, um, building out some teasing out some spice notes in the yeast and then accentuating it. I don't remember the uh, specific varietal. I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for not remembering I believe it, it was Guatemala was what I saw on your website. Uh, thanks. On our, oh, great. Now Guatemala. Go ahead and say, <laughs> I should probably know better, <laughs> but uh, I remember the beer for sure because uh, it, it did work really, really well. And I think one of the things that we aim to do, I, I call it the tilt of the head. Uh, and, and I think that's another thing that, that we share in common with the dairy is a, uh, a desire to make things that are just a little bit different. And I say tilt of the head to, to sort of conjure the image of a dog that hears a strange sound. And it's just like the slight tilt of the head, like what, tell, tell me more, what was that? And uh, that's a lot of what we do. And the dairy does as well is the things that are just a little bit curious and engaging uh, so as to spark that tell me more like curiosity. I, I do think that Bideri Gold in particular pulled that off really well. And, and sort of philosophically, if you go too far on the discordant or the strange, then that, that tilt of the head becomes a turn away. And that's something that I know both Sam and I aim to avoid. <laughs> Who doesn't? I like that image of the tilt of the head. With that beer in particular, when a customer tastes that for the first time, do they recognize that there is cacao and chocolate in that? Or is the, the flavor profile such that they're just kind of wondering what that flavor is? That's a really good question. I mean, obviously your your mileage may vary on it and it's a little like spicy food or our Southern basil. There's a wide range of receptivity to it that in some ways is a mirror on the person drinking it more than whether it's there or not. It's as much psychology as it is um, olfactory uh, and not to get too deep, but it's, it's hard to answer that because it's so much about like where you're coming and what your expectations are on it. Personally, I think our use in, in both the two beers that we're talking about, the Vidari Gold and the Vidari Black, they're there for a reason, but it's not intended to overwhelm. We're not making, as I sometimes say, we're not making scented candles. We're making beer and we like adding layers of complexity, beers that work well still with food and can be enjoyed on their own or maybe something that you'd want a second of. Sure. And I think that's actually another reason. I've never had a dairy confection or bar where I'm like, I never want to have that again. I take a bite and I'm intrigued by the flavors and the balance and the creativity and I want more. And uh, that's uh, arguably as hard, if not harder to pull off in chocolate 
and confection than in beer? Those Guatemala cacao origins tend to be pretty acidic and expressive and kind of fruity. Having smelled or tasted that before it went into the beer, in the finished beer, were you able to kind of pick out those same notes or did that change during the process? Oh, it was pretty one-to-one for having the benefit of tried it ahead of time. I think it didn't, um, you know, our, our process in incorporating the nibs handles the risk of pasteurizing it, right. And keeping the beer uh, in, in good shelf stability without altering its flavor profile too much. So for, again, for somebody who had the benefit of tasting it ahead of time, I thought it was pretty true to that flavor. The real proof of the is uh, Sam himself, who was super pleased with it. Mm. And that was the highlight for me, honestly, was just seeing how much he liked that beer and, and talked about that, that beer in particular. And, and that again, is the where we, we keep coming back to that Fideri gold. I think that's because that iteration was a little bit more creative and notable than the, you know, arguably more straightforward Videri black, which was also delicious, but leaned into that stout profile that you mentioned. Did you use the same origin in those two beers or did you adjust that? We adjusted it. We, we veered away from acidic and, and fruity and more into like roasty and nutty on, on that. One of the things Sam has been working on the last few years is products specifically for brewers to use that are a mix of husks and nibs rather than the, just the conventional nibs that get used a lot of time. Have you had any opportunity to work with any of his newer products? As we enter into a season where we're going to brew a little bit more with uh, cocoa nibs and, uh, and continue to work with Videri, that's, that's something that we'll explore. We haven't to date. Tell me a little bit about Igor then. I don't think I had seen that you had used that one with Fideri. Well, we've done various iterations of Igor over the years. Sometimes it's a straightforward Imperial Stout. Sometimes we do additions and, and, and variations. I think the, that beer is on a little bit of hiatus as, as the beer world figures out what we really like about stouts. We're taking a, a bit of a break from brewing Imperial Stouts because we're not really into pastry stouts. And I think we're at the tail end of the overly sickly sweet pastry stout trend, which we never really chased. So we're just sort of waiting for things to settle down before Igor reemerges. Last question. Do you have a personal favorite Videri bar or confection? I've always been a big fan of their pink peppercorn and kind of their their handling of spice, particularly pepper. Uh, but I'll be Honest, my my favorite thing to do is just go in and pick a random assortment and just try new. If it's on the counter there, it's there for a reason. And I just want to just try something new and exciting. And it's also just a delight to have their go-to, that that peppermint one that they do around the holiday. I'm all over the place. I'm just a a big Videri fan. Sean isn't the only brewer who's a big Videri fan. Raleigh-area breweries like Crank Arm, Deep River, and Casita have used his cacao in numerous beers. Probably the highest-profile brewery to work with Baderi has been New Belgium. Sam talks here about the products he offers for brewers and how his relationship with Lauren Woods Limbach and New Belgium began. The products that we sell to brewers of beer, as everybody in chocolate knows, uh, when you roast and you winnow, you get a lot of extra stuff. By weight, it's about 80% really finely ground nib and 20% husk from the winnowing process. 
way back when I, I said, I think this is Brewer's Bouillon. And we sell quite a bit of that. We only sell it in two different varieties of beans. A couple of the varieties just don't have the same aromatic uh, properties, nor do they uh, steep very well. But right now we're doing Dominican beans from Zorzal Reserve as one of those products. And then Guatemalan beans from Lechua. We offer four or five different varieties of uh, just cocoa nibs. Uh, we have Uganda in right now, the varieties from uh, Guatemala and Dominican Republic, and then there's Philippines beans. They come in 10 kilo boxes and we can ship around the country. So a lot of brewers I've talked to who are working with cacao usually are favoring just kind of a straight ahead chocolatey flavor, something like a Ghana origin that doesn't have a whole lot of other nuances to it. You're working with some origins there that have a little bit more of that. How, how do you feel that comes through in a finished beer? So uh, Crank Arm does a holy moly stout, which is, you know, a dark stout that is spicy. And when they pick up the pepper, whatever kind of peppers are using, there's a little bit of fruit characteristic for those. And they match them with Guatemalan beans, which have a lot of fruit in them. And then the way they they put it through their system, it you get that that note of cocoa fudgy flavor, but you you get to add in that little bit of fruit. So a lot of times when we talk to brewers of beer, and especially when Lauren and I first met uh, from New Belgium, and she was talking to me about how a lot of people in beer, when they taste strawberry in a beer, it's an off flavor. And in her brain, strawberries are delicious. And she wanted to figure out a way to get more strawberry in a beer. And we started talking about all these different elements of cocoa and roasting and profiling and all that sorts of stuff. And then she's just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, for goodness sake, I think she created the way in which like brewers craft their like pre-brewing system of flavor building (laughs) because she just has like this insane knowledge, her flavor wheel that is memorized in her head. And the way in which you can pick up flavors is crazy. But when we talk to breweries, you know, we have three different options of flavors. You have Guatemala, which is definitely on the fruitier acidic side. You have Dominican that has that cocoa powder fudge with a little bit of cherry kind of flavor in it. And then you have something like Ghana, or we can actually roast our Tanzania a little bit hotter and longer and just bring out just a brownie flavor. So it really depends on the brewer and what they're trying to go for. For me, it's, it's the fun of it. I mean, it's not to say that if somebody said, I just want cocoa nibs that are fudgy and chocolatey, that I would turn them away. I'd be like, cool, these are the ones for you. So it really is that, like that partnership, that pairing and the chatting and then drinking beer and eating chocolate. It's a, it's a good one. How did that relationship with New Belgium begin? That's certainly a very large brewery. How did you guys get together? Yeah, I've actually got a, a few friends that work at New Belgium and one of their biggest accounts for fat tires across the street here at Boxcar Arcade. And uh, I got invited over there to, you know, sample a new beer they were launching or releasing. And uh, Lauren, and I forget who else was there, a couple other people were there. And she's like, try a beer. I was like, yeah, cool. I was like, you want to try some chocolate? And that's how that relationship started. Her knowledge is, it is, it is encyclopedic with the most humble genuine sense of confidence that I've ever experienced in a person. She wasn't there preaching anything to me. She was just talking to me about what she was doing and why she does it and why she loves doing it. And it was actually one of the more like motivating and uplifting experiences I've ever had. 
Headquartered in Fort Collins, Colorado, New Belgium was one of the first American craft breweries to produce wood-aged mixed-fermentation sour beers, and despite being one of the largest craft breweries in the country, with a multinational parent brewery behind them, they are still constantly experimenting on limited-release blended sour beers. The woman at the helm of that experimentation is Lauren Woods Limbach, a master brewer, blender, and sensory specialist, and one of the top minds in the world on sour beer production. Lauren's domain is the fooder room at the Fort Collins Brewery, a large room full of wooden fooders containing various sour beers, from which Lauren and her team will draw from to create finished blends. Their primary sour base beers are Oscar, a dark sour, and Felix, a golden sour. Lauren uses the nuances and distinctions of the various vessels of these beers like threads in a cloth, weaving together flavor influences into a cohesive and vibrant finished pattern. A great example is Exquisite Extraction, a dark sour beer brewed with Dominican Republic cacao nibs and husks from Vidari, and Ethiopian Worka Chabessa and Gera-washed coffee beans from Raleigh Coffee Company Black and White Roasters. I talked with Lauren recently about how this project came together. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my level two exam many years ago. I wish the level three had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. We started talking about beer and husks and nibs and, you know, just kind of different beers that use that. And we talked about just doing an event. And, and this one is when we had kind of had a um, roaming uh, road show. It went from city to city back in the day where you could just roam free. It was called Into the Wild. We'd go from city to city and connect with people that were like-minded and fermentation or things that are wild and unknown and both in beer and all kinds of stuff. So when we were thinking about Raleigh, Durham kind of area, we thought chocolate. So that immediately reminded me about this person that I had yet to connect professionally with. And that seemed like the perfect time. So we had a beautiful collaboration event with Videri and then also with Black and White Roasters. Um, And so Kyle brought some of his favorite coffee. Sam had 
his Dominican Republic nibs and husks. And we had hot chocolate or his sipping chocolate there. And we kind of did this where we talked about the sour beer fermentation. We talked a little bit about cacao. We talked a little bit about coffee. And then we had three different stations where you kind of taste things separately. And then we brought them all together where we had an infusion of coffee nibs and that were infused in a, like a fooder aged dark sour. Um, And then we served that on nitro there for everybody to kind of get the components and then kind of see how they marry together. And it was an absolutely magical night. I think it kind of awed each one of us to be able to see coffee nerds, chocolate nerds, and beer nerds all together because they, they're kind of the exact same human. And, but everybody brought something that just absolutely stunned you know, we were, the conversations were ridiculously fun. And I just think that it was like fun to mingle all those people together and to be able to see that what happens when you like synergize all of that excitement and flavor together. Before working with Videri and some other chocolate makers that you've worked with, what was your relationship to chocolate and how has that changed personally since then? My relationship with chocolate was, you know, a personal one more than a professional one. (laughs) You know, that's something that I've always had a big interest in. And, you know, from the beginning times when you would only see things like, you know, you go to Seattle and you would see Theo or something, you know, like, and that was like the first time you ever saw being to bar. And then there's this huge process and the process is really you know, you can take this ingredient and in the hands of a lay person, it's nothing. Um, and then when you have some, an expert with somebody that is absolutely engulfed in, in this whole thing that you can tell when they're just mad about it, what happens, and then being able to taste different, you know, bars that are made from the quote, same ingredient and how they can bring the expressions that a chocolate maker can really bring to it. That was, you know, just something that I started becoming really interested in and really trying to understand the single origin, just the same as you would coffee, because I absolutely liken myself to a coffee nerd, but I, I'm not, um, don't ask me any questions about that, but I do get up every single day and like painstakingly make a 25 minute cup of coffee. So the same thing was kind of happening with chocolate. And then we had a chocolate maker move into Fort Collins and you know, he is just uber over the top about education. And so um, when I was working in the sensory lab and I brought uh, Toby in to do a um, educational talk about that. And so we, he, we brought in tons of single origin just to use a different ingredient than beer to uh, train uh, our panelists to be able to describe differences and similarities and be able to do a full like descriptive analysis of different single origins. And then just doing that you know, you taste 10, you know, 10 different origins and you're, you're hooked. It's that's, it's just that easy. All you have to do is just get somebody's attention for 30 minutes. And then you're, you're absolutely, you're stuck. You'll never be able to taste chocolate the same again. Yeah, for sure. 
So if I recall the beer that came out of that event with Bideri and black and white roasters uh, ended up being bottled as exquisite extraction. Is that right? Can you tell me a little bit about that finished beer? We actually realized that at that night that that was fun and to be able to make that keg of beer was fun, but we thought that we could be a lot more purposeful and really kind of reverse engineer, create something that, you know, create a base, use the beer, but really do it thoughtfully to be able to really push those three elements a little bit further and to be able to make it like an entire release. And so actually Michael Kaiser is the one during that night, he, he kept saying exquisite extraction <laughs> and it's a tongue twister. So it was just fun to say again and again. And we talked about that as being, that is exactly what we're all trying for. We're trying to extract the most exquisite thing, like having, you know, you have these three components and each one of them is so precious and complex. You can't just say one plus one plus one equals three. It never, ever works like that. So how do you finesse? What are the things you can kind of go over and what's the, you know, what's the main thing and how do you put that um, forth? So that was just a conversation between the Kyle, Sam, and I a lot, you know, about what, which varietals, you know, how much, who, you know, what, how do we want the flavor to present itself individually, like, and from the first sniff all the way through the aftertaste and then kind of the overall impression that you get. And the fun things about these like one-offs is usually someone doesn't come in and buy a case of 750 cork and cage nitro and fruit use cork and cage bottles. So you usually have one time to wow somebody, you know, they'll split it with a friend and you have usually have about 12 ounces to be able to just absolutely dazzle them and to make them stop what they're doing and actually pay attention to what they're tasting. And that was really what exquisite extraction was all about was really trying to just wake the person's organoleptic self up and bring them to consciousness again. Cause a lot of times we just like go through our day and we eat our food and we drink our drink and you don't, and you wake up and you're like, I don't, what happened to yesterday? Um, so that was like our one chance to really make people pay attention. We'll be right back. Hey everyone. Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svetinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode.
The majority of chocolate beers tend to use nibs and they're often in the porter stout category that already have those sort of roasty flavors. You're making a dark sour beer and you were using a mixture of nibs, but primarily husks. Can you talk a little bit about using the husks and why that's particularly advantageous for a a sour mixed fermentation beer? I think that for Sam, you know, he's so proud of his, the nibs, like we couldn't you know, he takes great, great pride in that. So I really didn't want to just pass on that as an ingredient. I personally, being a beer maker, I am wildly fond of husks because I, my world, of, especially making sour beer, the quest for foam retention is real. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's, you know, you get a low pH, you have no proteins left after a really long barrel aging process. And, you know, you, you see this beer poured usually and three seconds later, you know, you're like, oh gosh, there it goes. <laughs> and then it's not as appealing. So for me, the thought of husks and kind of leaving behind a lot of the essential kind of fatty acids that are in and the all those like volatile aromas usually come from that. And so when you're talking about coffee, you're talking about chocolate, you're basically talking about foam killers. And then the beautiful thing is like this husk, the seemingly byproduct, waste product of this ingredient all of a sudden becomes like the thing that you have been looking for you know, all your life. When you extract um, at a really specific time and temperature in a really specific pH beer. For, for me, what I found that the husk, you don't miss the nibs. You don't miss that because the aroma is just absolutely decadent and dynamite and foam positive. So that has been something that I have these little things that during your career where you have these aha moments and you're like, wow, this is great. And we did actually, you, we brewed a stout to be a small, small portion of the beer, the foot in the final volume, because we definitely wanted a little bit of that kind of middle piece to the beer. Um, the sour really kind of, you were kind of missing like the middle body of the kind of heft, the malt profile. And really we wanted to kind of bring that back in a very small piece of it. So you did feel like a little bit more decadent than what we were getting with the 100% sour. But yeah, I, I am a great fan of the husks. I also, you know, we, like I said, we, used, we ended up using about 180 pounds of nibs and husks, the Dominican Republic single origin. And that was, I mean, we just knew it, that that, that was it. So. And at what point were you adding those in the process? The very, very end. So we blended uh, and we did a separate infusion of the coffee beans and a separate infusion of the chocolate. The coffee, I knew that we could nail. And so we, I thought we were going to do them separately, but I instead decided that we could do, get the coffee and get the beer we wanted, the chocolate we wanted, and then we could do a step addition of coffee until we got to that point. So we ended up like, we thought we were going to use, you know, say a hundred. And so we, st- we did it 25, 25, 25 at the end. And I think we ended 
with about 75% of what we thought we were going to add. So that's a really, you know, when you're making this beer and you're a, a year into it, it's those last 15 minutes where everything could just completely go wrong. And you add one, it's like one ounce too much of rose petals. and You can't take it back, you know? So it's like, all of a sudden you're like, you went from this gorgeous beer to my first perfume bottle, you know, it just, it's, it was the worry. So that was the worry was getting that far with all these precious things and then going over the edge. And so that way we decided to do it that way. It worked out perfectly. And how did you feel like the flavor of that Dominican Republic cacao came through in that finished beer? I think I've talked about this before. And I think that for me, Oh gosh, if you were the person, the, the chocolate maker, and you were tasting the finished product, I think that you might be a little disappointed because potentially you might say, well, you know, I was looking for A, B, and C, and I only got B. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, the delicate flavor, you know, the, this little part that's so subtle and this part that's subtle, the thing that you truly value about that origin would be a little lost. And so I, I definitely, I'm very cognizant and sensitive to that when I'm using somebody's super special and then it ends up being in a giant sour beer and you're like, is it a giant sour beer? So it's the fun thing I thought that about the Dominican Republic was that the way that he described it to me the first time, it sounded like he was describing Oscar, like the sour like the, the actual beer like that came out of the food or the dark sour ale that came out of the fooder and the different fruity kind of notes and kind of like funky woody. I, I wish I could just remember exactly, but I do remember him saying, making this description. And I was like, that's funny. It sounds exactly like you're describing the beer, but there's no way they're absolutely different things. And mm-hmm. we thought that that was really funny. The concept of the different fruits that he described, the different, you know, the, the acidity, tart acidity, zing. I don't know how to describe chocolate that great, but I definitely would say that, that it was not supposed to contrast, but very much complement and enhance the, the beer. The result is absolutely fascinating and so nuanced. I find the more complex a flavor profile becomes, the more our own descriptions serve as something of a map of our own palates and our own past sensory experiences, rather than a prescriptive blueprint for what someone else will taste. When I smelled this beer, I got a rush of creamy milk and acidic dark chocolate, with notes of Concord grape and plum, and some of the warm funk of a cacao sack, burlap, hay, sour vanilla. The sip brought a restrained sourness in a creamy and smooth but dry body. The same notes of underripe plum, tart grape, and burlap came forward with acidic and bright light roast coffee and just a touch of subtle cocoa. As Sam and I wrapped up our conversation, he shared his own thoughts on the beer and on the story he's telling through Videri Chocolate. I brought her Dominicans or Zalbeans and I believe a Guatemalan variety. And um, she picked up on that cherry flavor and the Dominican beans. And then I forget what coffee Kyle and Lem at Black and White Coffee Roasters sent them, but it was just like, she just picked up on those flavors immediately. It wasn't a lot of back and forth. It wasn't like, no, this didn't work. I want to try something different. It was, she's building this beer. She's putting it in this one. I tasted the base beer that she was um, 
going to add the the nibs and the coffee to and once she said like the flavor notes out loud and then we tasted that beer I was like yeah that makes perfect sense I have one bottle at my house left that I'm going to drink at our 10-year anniversary party it's exquisite what story is your chocolate telling the story our chocolate is telling is one of a welcoming way to get into bean to bar chocolate without having to question, is this supposed to taste good? You know, when you walk into our factory and you talk to the team that works here and how we talk to people about chocolate and again, being able to see everything that we're doing, I want that, that chocolate to have that same sense of excitement that I get every single day I come into work, where you open something up, it tastes good. It gives you that feeling that chocolate should, that this is a treat, but also it's not filled with garbage. But the story we're trying to tell is that we want to showcase North Carolina and especially Raleigh for a place that somebody that literally found out that chocolate was a fruit in 2009 started making chocolate and still does to this day. So that story, especially through a pandemic running a retail business, I still want it to be like a welcoming, fun, delicious treat that people get to enjoy. A very happy 10th anniversary to Sam and the entire team at Videri. Congratulations on the milestone, and we're all grateful you still love making chocolate because we still love eating it. You can order their bars, bonbons, and other treats on the Videri website, which I'll link to in the show notes. Thanks to Sam, Sean, and Lauren for appearing on the show today. Thanks for listening to Bean to Barstool. Stool.